It's Wednesday, June 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A new study done by the National Institutes of Health is showing that in five states, some people were infected with COVID-19 before those states recorded their first cases. Blood samples collected between January and March of 2020 were tested for antibodies. Out of 24,000 samples, nine came back positive. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, we have been seeing a lot of bad behavior on airplanes recently. Disruptions by passengers due to alcohol and especially their refusal to wear masks has been on the rise. The FDA has not been shy about publicizing the fines associated with unruly passengers and proposed a $15,000 fine for one man who wasn't wearing his mask and drinking alcohol in the plane when it was prohibited. Hannah Sampson, travel reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for the rise of conflicts in the air. Finally, be warned when making plans this summer. Everyone has the same idea as you. Right now, national and state parks are being overwhelmed with people trying to enjoy outdoor activities. At Arches National Park in Utah, they reach capacity and close gates to visitors most days before 9 a.m. Allison Poli, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how it's packed everywhere, even outdoors. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And the antibodies they found normally start to appear about two weeks after someone is infected. So that means those two people, one in Illinois and one in Massachusetts, were likely infected around December, December 24th or maybe a little bit earlier. Joining us now is Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us today, Betsy. Thanks for having me. We have a new research study that was done by the National Institutes of Health that turned up evidence of a possible coronavirus infection in the United States, multiple ones actually, as early as December 2019, maybe sometime around Christmas time. And so these are all weeks before the first documented infections in the country and, and in, even in those particular states as well. Uh, so Betsy, walk us through some of this. What do we know? What are we learning? So the NIH has a, a big research program that you and listeners may have heard of called the All of Us Research Program. And its goal is to enroll a million people across the country of diverse backgrounds and through the database that they built in that to study risk factors for disease and treatments and so forth. They're building this big database of blood samples and, and so forth from people, volunteers who enroll. So what they decided to do is use the blood samples that they have collected so far to look at this kind of growing question of interest, you know, how early did the pandemic reach U.S. shores? When, when did people first start getting sick? Because we know the first person to be, you know, formally diagnosed was in late January, around January 19th, but that was right after a test became available. So the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, develops a test. It's made you know, available in its lab, and boom, two days later, someone has this. So that raises the question of, well, are they really the first person or not? <laughs> so these researchers went through and tested blood samples going back to the beginning of January. I think out of 24,000, a little over 24,000 participants, they found evidence of infection in just nine people. That suggests a, a number of different things. What they did find, though, also is that in five states, Illinois, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, they had people that showed evidence of infection. And that was all before, you know, anybody had gotten in those first states, big areas like California and New York, 
there were no infections that turned up, at least in, the, in these blood samples. What they found was that people, you know, they, they looked at blood samples going back into early January. And what they were looking for was antibodies in the blood. These are blood samples that were taken at the time, and then they're frozen and stored for research later. So the researchers go back, they test the blood for antibodies using two different tests to make sure that it really is the COVID-19 virus called SARS-CoV-2 and not something else. So they found, you know, one person on January 7th, one person on January 8th, and that the antibodies they found normally start to appear about two weeks after someone is infected. So that means those two people, one in Illinois and one in Massachusetts, were likely infected around December, December 24th or maybe a little bit earlier. Then they went later in time through March and, you know, 24,000 samples, as you said, they only found nine cases. So what that shows is that certainly the virus was here earlier than we knew before. And a couple of studies have shown that now. But it wasn't, you know, not in large numbers. I mean, these were kind of like sporadic cases. And that happens often with infectious diseases, you know, something that causes an outbreak. There's a few cases here, a case here, a case there. And then eventually something takes hold and it starts to spread. But until then, there are these cases that are missed. One of the limitations in this study and something that they wanted to look back into a little bit more was that they don't really show uh, travel history for these people, these nine people that did have those infections. So I think they wanted to dig in a little bit more to see if they had traveled to China or contact with anybody from there around that time also. There's very little actually known about these people and how they might have gotten infected. What this means is looking back to that period, if you had some symptoms the chances are that, no, you didn't have COVID, but these aren't the only nine people, right? I mean, they may exactly. have spread it to one or two other people. There are other people who may have had this and, you know, weren't involved in this study. But it wasn't in such large numbers that it would have been noticed, you know, that a hospital would have started noticing they were getting a lot of patients with the same strange system, uh, symptoms. Sorry, So it just wasn't big enough at the time. Yeah, and so we got this new data that I know you mentioned in the article, there was another study that had similar results in just showing that obviously we didn't have the COVID test ready to go when we started seeing the first inklings of it. Um, So it was kind of expected that we were going to see some of these other infections floating around earlier than some of these first confirmed cases. When the test first became available in January, because there uh, there weren't a lot of tests and there weren't a lot of labs that could do it, And then later, because there was a problem with the test, the public health authorities focused testing on people who had been to China or another country where there was COVID-19 spreading. So you and others may remember this. People who, you know, in February of 2020 thought they had COVID-like symptoms, but they hadn't traveled anywhere and they, you know, hadn't had contact with anyone who was known to have COVID-19 literally couldn't get a test. Now what we know is there were other people. You didn't have to travel to China and there were people who weren't terribly ill. So the point, or one of the points here is that is the importance of having a test that's widely available and not restricting your criteria for the test. That anybody with symptoms or who may have had contact should be able to get a test rather than limiting it to somebody who was in a place where the disease was spreading. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. It's good to be with you. Thank you. 
Joining us now is Hannah Sampson, travel reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about what's going on in our airlines right now. Uh, we've seen just a rise in disruptive passengers. The FAA has been publicizing the fines that they're giving out to people just to, I, I guess, hopefully deter some of them. A lot of these disruptions have to do with mask wearing, which is pretty unfortunate. But a lot of them also have to do with alcohol and whatnot. But we're seeing this come. You know, we just saw a bunch of high profile uh, headlines about Southwest passengers knocking out a flight attendant's teeth. There was a story just uh, that came out today. I believe it was a off duty flight attendant uh, was becoming unruly on a Delta flight. Hannah, tell us what we're seeing out there, please. Yeah. And, you know, that second one actually happened after my story ran. So honestly, I could probably update the story every right. other day and have a new example. But yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of kind of, I think, small acts of defiance uh, where people are refusing to wear their masks, which is, a, you know, a federal mandate right now on planes. But too often those conflicts are really escalating and, and turning into shouting obscenities, shoving. As you said, in the Southwest case, somebody took a swing at a flight attendant and reportedly knocked out a couple of teeth. And the Delta incident that you mentioned, several passengers and flight attendants had to physically subdue a passenger who was being disruptive. And that's not even the first time that scenario has unfolded. So it really is kind of running the gamut, but it all kind of adds up to a situation that experts are saying is just kind of like unprecedented in terms of bad behavior in the skies. I did want to focus on the mask just a little bit more. The FAA, since the beginning of the year, said that there's been about 2,900 reports of unruly passengers. 2,200 of those involved something with masks, people not wanting to do that. That order is in place until September 13th, I think it is. So, you know, it's going to go all throughout the summer. And that's just one of the things that people, you know, there's a lot of confusion about. Your state, your city might have done away with their mask mandates and they feel, well, I'm going to get on a plane now. I don't need it. But that's just not true right now. And I mean, the CDC is even giving one set of guidance to people who are kind of living their everyday lives outdoors, indoors, whatever. But then they have these other rules for people who are in planes and in airports and in other forms of transportation. You know, it could be that there's just a lot of misunderstanding that people realize, like, I don't have to wear my mask even to Disney World or to the grocery store or whatever, but I still have to wear it on a plane. Why? And then they get mad. I think it's the confusion or the lack of, you know, one set of rules in every situation is is contributing to some of the reticence on flights. Right. And it goes a little bit both ways. You spoke to a psychologist, which I thought was interesting. Obviously, there's people that don't want to wear the mask, maybe defiance, whatever they want to do. But then there's people on high alert on the other side that want to call those people out, whether it's for their own safety or, or whatever the case may be. They're saying, hey, that person's not wearing their mask. Make them put it on kind of thing. So it's on both sides. Everybody's just on high alert and really anxious about all of it. Yeah. So you, you just kind of end up in this boiling cauldron of tension when you're on a plane, because, you know, if you're the person who's following the rules and wearing your mask and then the, the person two seats over is a mask scofflaw, 
you're going to sit there seething and worrying about what this guy is doing. And, and that person is mad because somebody's going to tell him to put his mask on. So it's just, it is a very potentially combustible situation where tensions are high, emotions are high. And the people who are worried about their neighbor's mask use are worried for a reason. They, yeah. they don't want to get sick. They don't want, you know, this flight to turn into a super spreader event. So, you know, it's not unreasonable to have that worry, but it also doesn't make anything easier when you're flying. And then, you know, consequences that come because of that. Obviously, the FAA, as I mentioned, is publicizing a lot of those fines that they're putting out there. I think the highest fine that we're seeing so far is about $15,500 for an unruly passenger that I think uh, it started off with him not wanting to wear his face mask properly. He was also drinking those little tiny bottles of alcohol. And that's one of the other consequences. You know, a lot of these airlines have not resumed alcohol on their flights. And uh, people are saying maybe even in the airport itself, you shouldn't be doing it because people are getting onto these airplanes loaded. So Southwest and American have both gone ahead and extended their pause in selling alcohol on board. They had already stopped, but they're not going to restart as soon as they had planned to. And flight attendants have said, you know, we should probably consider also cutting off alcohol at the airports because if you're going to get sloshed, you're probably going to start drinking before you get on the plane. Obviously, they don't like it, but flight attendants and the cabin crew, I mean, what have they been saying uh, in reaction to all of this increase in uh, unruly passengers? They're pretty unhappy. They're, they're pretty, um, you know, it's just uncomfortable and not just not just tense and not just more difficult, but it has become dangerous for, in some cases, for flight attendants when they're having to physically subdue people, when they're getting punched in the face. It's just a bad situation. And, and many of them have been, you know, raising the alarm, asking the airlines to back them up as much as possible, asking for some kind of government, I don't know, interference or like the FAA to, to continue to crack down. They're kind of on the front line of this, but they also need to be backed up by everybody with more authority to make sure that they're not fighting this battle on their own. Hannah Sampson, travel reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And visitation numbers have only increased since then. So at Arches National Park, for example, the gates to the park do temporarily close when the parking lots become full. And most days that happens before 9 a.m. Joining us now is Allison Poley, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Allison. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, these. a lot of people are getting ready for their summer getaways. A lot of people are getting some road trips in. A lot of people are heading to national parks and state parks. But there is a situation with overcrowding right now. And in some cases, these parks are closing their gates until, you know, some people move out. Everybody's saying basically be ready for some long lines getting into these uh, parks. You mentioned a lot about Utah in your article because it has a bunch of different parks right now close by to each other that some people can't get into one. They'll move on to the next one. But it's still just becoming such a, a, an issue waiting in line just to get in. So, Allison, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing there. Some of the most popular national parks are expecting record crowds this summer, and these are parks that have already seen a lot of visitation. 
So some of these parks were closed last spring, and then when they reopened last summer, people flocked to them because they were able to be outside, they were able to social distance and enjoy the outdoors. And visitation numbers have only increased since then. So at Arches National Park, for example, the gates to the park do temporarily close when the parking lots become full. And most days that happens before 9 a.m. And they will open back up anywhere from two to five hours later. But in some cases, people have still seen lines when they go back in later in the day to try to enter the park. Yeah, and the demand is there. This April, people going to the park was up 15% from 2019. So this was before the pandemic. So people are wanting to get out there. One of the interesting things that happened with all of this, though, is some uh, some of these unattended consequences. If they can't get into the main park, they'll go on to some other undeveloped land that's in the nearby area. They make these kind of campsites there. Fires have started, trash. You know, it can become a, a big problem for the community around there as well. So a lot of people started camping during the pandemic. And so more people are camping on federal lands. And in some cases, the land that they're camping on isn't intended for tourism or overnight stays. So in some of those areas, they're seeing a lot more trash, even human waste and it creates resource management issues for the local community. You know, it's kind of a catch-22 because the people in the nearby communities obviously want tourists and visitors to come by. It helps boost their economies. But as I mentioned, you know, these things, uh, you know, trash, there's been reports of graffiti in the nearby areas. You know, all of this stuff really kind of makes a mess. And what they're saying now is that they're pushing for these national parks to maybe have a reservation system where you kind of book the time that you're going to be there. But that's also being met with some skepticism. You know, some people in the community say, if you're doing it that way, then people might skip over. They might not actually come and spend their money there. So it's a really tough uh, situation to get a handle on. It is a tough situation to get a handle on. So it's exactly like you said. So some residents and activists are proposing that Arches, in particular, institute a reservation system so people can book windows to enter the park. But as you mentioned, some people in the community fear that if people think that they can't get a reservation, then they might not even try. Or if they see if it's it's full that day and they wanted to go that day in particular, then they might just skip over it. But some other parks have reservation systems in place. This year, Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado has a reservation system, as does Yosemite in California. So we are seeing other parks try that out. One of the other parts of it, too, is Funding for these national parks has always been a problem. They've been losing funding and staffing leading into the pandemic. Obviously, there was a huge shutdown throughout there, but they still haven't recovered from that part as well. So funding for the national parks has not increased in proportion to visitation. So over the past decade, if you look at between 2011 and 2019, the National Park Service lost 16% of its staffing capacity, but at the same time, there was a 17% increase in visitation. So the Biden administration has proposed an increase in funding for its budget for next year, which would allow for more staff. So I guess we'll have to see if that goes through. Allison Poli, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.